Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I just want to take a moment, let you know a bit of what's coming up in our community in the next little bit. Firstly, we are very excited about our summer camp for kids this coming July. We have many people who've already signed up to serve in a variety of roles, and we thank you so much. We invite you to be a part of this amazing week where kids will be introduced to Jesus potentially for the first time, or to grow deeper in their relationship with him. If you'd like to serve or register your child, you can find information and registration on our website. And we also have many families that can't always afford a camp like this, and we invite you to give to our general fund because your money can help support a family in need this summer and provide a way for kids to come and experience the love of Christ. So you can give to the Ministry of Southview through Realm, or you can simply text SOUTHVIEW to 73256. And for more giving options, you can visit us at southviewchurch.com. And secondly, we also have some wonderful staff news. Justine Lofgren, who is our Director of Women's Ministry here at Southview and is awesome, has recently completed her work with the Western District of Alliance Canada to become a licensed worker. So she passed her interviews with Flying Colors. We had no doubt that that would be the case. And so now we're able to change her title to pastor justine so we're super pumped and we invite you to celebrate with us as we honor pastor justine and this accomplishment the best way you can know what's going on at southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint you can find a link to our viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast and if you're new with us here in this digital space we'd love to hear from you you can find an online connection card at the bottom of the viewpoint along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer and additionally you can find us on instagram and facebook so today no matter how you're joining with us may our hearts be open and expectant because god is here and jesus invites you and me to bring all that we are and all that we're currently carrying to him in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit let's seek the face of god together welcome i have very much enjoyed the last few weeks of teaching and if you can get through this week I assure you there are many great speakers lined up over this time while Clyde is away. And as we do each week through the season of Easter, we'll be coming to the Lord's table shortly. And it's a reminder that that is truly the high point of our gathering. And if you haven't been with us over the last week since Easter, we're currently in a series entitled Stories from God. And it's a series that's looking at the parables of Jesus. And I'm not sure about you, but over the years, I have found parables at times to be obtuse or unclear. And based on the history of varied interpretation of the different parables, it seems perhaps that it's not just a me thing. In their book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart say that for all their charm and simplicity, the parables have suffered a fate of misinterpretation in the church, second only to Revelation. The fact of the matter is this, parables aren't intended to be entirely clear. 
at least one of the functions of parables is to conceal the truth or at least to present it in a veiled way. And it's a little odd saying or hearing that. And the disciples, they heard Jesus speak in parables often, but they ask him outright why he speaks to the crowds in this way. And Jesus responds in Matthew 13, starting at verse 10. Then the disciples came and asked him, why do you speak to them in parables? He answered, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them, it has not been given. For to those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. The reason I speak to them in parables is that seeing they do not perceive, and hearing they do not listen, nor do they understand. With them, going down to verse 16, but blessed are your eyes, for they see and your ears, for they hear. Truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. So looking at Jesus' response, we see that for those who are already accepting of his message, they will get even more. But for those who are closed to the message, they will get nothing. What Jesus is doing, and he references this in the following verses of 14 through 17, he's leaning on and adapting the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And in that chapter, Isaiah is given a vision, and he's told to tell that vision to Israel in order to warn them what was coming. But to do so with the knowledge that they won't listen. Jesus' message, like Isaiah's, has a backward effects on the listeners. Because the power of stories, even cryptic, metaphorical ones, will penetrate the hearts of some while hardening the hearts of others. On top of this, parables can cover a wide range of styles. The word parable can refer to proverbs, maxims, similes, allegories, fables, comparisons, riddles, taunts, stories embodying some truth. And the parables of the New Testament come close to sharing that range with us. We see a parable as a proverb in Luke 3.42, and John calls it a figure of speech. We see the parable as a profound or obscure saying in Matthew 13.35, or a nonverbal symbol or image later on in Hebrews 9.9, an illustrative comparison with or without a story in Matthew 15.15. 15. And there are many more. And knowing that range and then what kind of parable we're reading can help us to approach the reading of that parable. Now, typically, it's best to read a parable multiple times and see what rises to the surface. And honestly, Sean Barron and I, I'll say, lovingly encouraged this sermon series for quite some time, simply for the reason that we can approach the parables much the way we should be experiencing various forms of art. And I know some of you have heard me say this before, but a great example for me is Rembrandt's painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son. By the title alone, we're already given a bit of information 
particularly if we're familiar with the story or parable. However, as you spend time studying the painting, more things seem to surface in terms of what the artist may be communicating in the details. We can clearly see the father welcoming him, his son home, but, but what about in the background? Why did Rembrandt make some of the choices he did with the expressions on faces or with color or with lighting? Henry Nouwen had a profound impact on me, particularly in my late teen, early adult years. And one of my favorite books at the time was named after this painting of Rembrandt's. It's an entire book written on this one piece of art. And Nouwen sat for months each day studying and noticing new elements of this painting. Here's a snippet of some of the beauty that he discovered during this time. The true center of Rembrandt's painting is the hands of the Father. On them, all light is concentrated. On them, the eyes of the bystanders are focused. In them, mercy becomes flesh. Upon them, forgiveness, reconciliation, and healing come together. And through them, not only the tired son, but also the worn-out father find their rest. So in that, pushing kind of Rembrandt to the side, at the end of the day, the parables can be approached in a similar way. They may not always be straightforward, but read and reread them to consider what Jesus may be telling us. Or to put it more concisely, to consider what Jesus is calling us to or how we will respond. So today we're reading a parable from Matthew 13, and it's known as the parable of the weeds among the wheat. So for this particular parable, Jesus actually explains its meaning to the disciples later on in private. But let's jump in, in Matthew 13, verse 24, and remember, this is the word of God. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in his field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, an enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No, for in gathering the weeds you would uproot the wheat along with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Let's pray. Father, we come simply and ask, would you open our eyes and ears to your word? Let us see and hear you as we gather today. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So jumping into today's text, we have a parable that actually is only found in the book of Matthew. And it is given to the crowds. And I make that differentiation because here in Matthew... 
there's a relatively simple outline where the first 33 verses are mostly speaking to the crowds. And then there's a pause in the middle for verses 34 through 43. And then there are parables that are given only to the disciples in verses 44 through 52. And so this parable starts with the phrase, as we read, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to dot, dot, dot. Or in other translations, we may be familiar with the term, the kingdom of heaven is like... And in this chapter, seven of the eight parables begin with that phrase. There are more parables about the kingdom in this chapter of Matthew than in any other chapter in the New Testament. So clearly Matthew, or more specifically Jesus, wants us to hear about this kingdom. And he tells us in Matthew 3 verse 2 that the kingdom he's talking about has come near in him. In the person of Jesus... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what's interesting to note is that in the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, he has declared both that the kingdom is at hand, but also that we're in this period of waiting. And we've said this before, but a way of describing the kingdom is that it's both already here, but not yet. There is a fulfillment coming with Christ's return. So the first parable in this chapter 13, the parable of the sower, it shows that though the kingdom will now make its way amid hard hearts or competing pressures, even failure, it will produce an abundant crop. And for our parable today, it continues that theme of growth. It describes a different aspect of the new reality which has come into being through Jesus's ministry. The parable of the weeds among the wheat, it wasn't an unheard of illustration in Jesus' time. In fact, one of the acts of vengeance in tensions between farmers in that ancient day was the threat, I'll sow weeds in your field. In fact, there, there was even Roman laws drawn up to deal with that specific problem. Now, the weeds that Jesus references are likely bearded darnel. If you're a green thumb, maybe you know what that is. I just had to Google it. But it's very close to wheat and quite difficult to distinguish from wheat when the plants are young. It isn't until the heads of grain appear that you can really tell which is wheat or which is weed. Therefore, Jesus says in verse 26 that when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. In addition to that, the grains of Darnell are poisonous. So when they're mixed with wheat, it renders the crop commercially useless as well as potentially harmful. Again, Jesus typically uses models in his parables that would be familiar with his audience. And even the tying up and burning of the Darnell is a natural method of disposal, though it would certainly have been unusual for this to have been done before the wheat had been safely stored. And so as we read this parable, we note that the enemy has sowed weeds among the wheat. The weed has been discovered, and when the workers ask whether to pull them up, the owner tells them to wait. So now let's jump ahead to verse 36 and read Jesus' explanation of this parable to the disciples. 
Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples approached him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. So to paraphrase, Jesus, what in the world does this story mean? It again reminds us that the meaning of Jesus' parables were often unclear. So continuing on in verse 37, he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. And the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The son of man will send his angels and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers. And they will throw them into the furnace of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Let anyone with ears listen. And so in our case today, we have Jesus actually explaining some of the meaning of this parable, a good chunk of it, but he doesn't give us all the answers. For example, we never find out whether the people sleeping means anything. The slaves are not identified, nor are the fire in the barn, although the significance of both fire and the barn becomes clearer in the description of the judgment in verses 42 and 43. So as the text tells us, Jesus leaves the crowd and he goes into the house in verse 36. And this house is presumably located in Capernaum. And it's the house that Jesus left in order to preach to the crowds in the first verse of this chapter. In fact, it's likely the house of Peter or Peter's family. And it's in this private space that the disciples ask for an explanation of this parable. And it's interesting to note that the disciples, they're not distinguished from the crowd by their instant or intuitive understanding, but rather by their persistence in seeking an explanation. And that alone may be a good prompt for us as followers of Jesus that we should be persistent in our efforts to grow in our understanding of God and his kingdom. Now, in Jesus's explanation, he's actually quite clear. He tells them a number of connections. First, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man in verse 37. Next, the field is the world. Now, I'm going to stop there briefly to mention, similar to what I said earlier, where the, where the parables are misinterpreted second only to the book of Revelation, which, a little plug, we're going into next year. And so, I want to stop where here because the early church fathers and many in church history have read this parable and then believed and interpreted the field in the story as actually being the church. And it was reinforced by the era of Constantine. And then Augustine actually made this interpretation official when he's struggling against the Donatists who were overzealous in their excommunication practices. Augustine went so far as to say that a mixture of good and evil in the church is a necessary sign of the church. And then later on, most reformers followed that same line. However, as we see here, Jesus said clearly that the field is the world. 
Frank E. Gabeline in his commentary says instead that the parable does not address the church situation at all, but explains how the kingdom can be present in the world while not yet wiping out all opposition. That must await the harvest. The parable deals with eschatological expectation, not ecclesiological deterioration. Now, because I was doing Sam's sermon last, and I couldn't pronounce Greek words, I had to put English words I could really pronounce. But all that means, eschatological, the end of things, eschatological expectation being what is to come versus ecclesiological deterioration. That's just a big word for the state of the church. So Jesus goes on to point out that the good seeds are the children of the kingdom, whereas the weeds are the children of the evil one. Lastly, the enemy who sowed the weeds is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the reapers are angels. So whereas many parables can be quite cryptic, for this one, we, we have some clarity. So I want to highlight a couple of things from Jesus's explanation. First, it is imperative that we recognize that it is the enemy who sows the weeds. Now, again, we've talked about it over the years here, but Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, 12, that our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. It is the enemy who sows the weeds. In her book, The Crucifixion, Fleming Rutledge says that the weed-sowing enemy holds all humanity and the entire created order in bondage. So we have the kingdom being near in the person of Jesus, and we see that mo those moments of the kingdom today in the sacraments, in creation around us, hopefully in the church, hopefully here at Southview, but also in the healing of the body through miraculous, extraordinary circumstances, but also in the healing of the body through the work of doctors and nurses in our healthcare system. The kingdom is around us. It is here, but it's also still coming. Until that time, we can see the weeds that the enemy has sown all around us as well. Whether it be abuse, war, fear, murder, the list is long and it is truly a devastating list. And yet, strangely, in our parable today, the owner says, let both of them grow together until the harvest. When the end of the age comes, Christ will send his angels to gather up the weeds, all causes of sin. And then for the wheat, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. In 1 Corinthians 15, 24, the apostle Paul says, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. Even in verse 41 of our text today, where it says, 
The Son of Man will send his angels and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers. Jesus is referencing earlier in Zephaniah 1 verse 3, where Zephaniah is using a word that may refer to idols or better yet, in a figurative manner to people seen as things that cause offense. And so this tension for us, this in-between, in many ways, we are in a liminal space of waiting. We live squarely in a time where the kingdom is already here, but not yet. Listen to these words from Rutledge. Although some will always understand biblical passages about division and judgment as referring only to righteous and unrighteous individuals, this human tendency to divide we from they is not on the deepest level of interpretation. Rather, the line runs through each person. Therefore, so long as we live in this fallen world, we are saint and sinner simultaneously until the destruction of the old Adam is completed as God makes all things new. And so even in us, we can see, in us personally, we can see this already not yet kingdom paradigm. And when Christ returns, it's in order to make that right. When Jesus speaks of the righteous shining like the sun in, their, in the kingdom of their father, this is an echo from the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. And by referencing that, it ensures the reader that we understands his, understand his words as reference to the resurrection, which is our future hope that we see in the risen Christ. So what does that mean for us in the meantime? Hear these words from 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. I don't want to try to oversimplify this, but clearly one of the things for us in this time is that patience is required. Because knowing and believing that Christ is returning while we wait, there is also work for us to do in the meantime. We know there will be a delay in separation until the harvest. If we believe what we just read in 2 Peter, then we know that joining in God's mission of building the kingdom is part of what we are to do, part of his work in this time. God is patient with us and wants all to come to repentance. And he will use us, guided by the Holy Spirit, just as his spirit will work in those around us. Rutledge puts this clearly as well. She says, in our world, something is terribly wrong and must be put right. If when we see an injustice, our blood does not boil at some point, we have not yet understood the depths of God. It depends, though, on what outrages us. To be outraged on behalf of oneself or one's own group alone is to be human. But it is not to participate in Christ. 
to be outraged and to take action on behalf of the voiceless and oppressed, however, is to do the work of God. So to put that another way, when we look at ourselves, are we a voice for the voiceless and oppressed? Individually, at corporately, as a church? Are we interested in being a part of that work? Do we focus our attention only on things that impact us? Or are we looking outward with the eyes of Christ? These are very difficult questions, particularly for us in the comfort of living in the affluent West. But they are imperative questions to be asking of ourselves and asking the Holy Spirit to shape us to that end. And so with that goal, it is fitting that we come to the table. Again, it's the high point of our gathering. And as I mentioned earlier, the sacraments are part of our participation in the kingdom. And not only can we experience the kingdom through the elements, but we know that we receive from Christ in this meal. And perhaps part of what we receive is eyes and ears to see and hear, or the ability to participate in the work of God in our world. And so coming to this table, we remember that Christ's body was broken for us. And likewise, Christ's blood was poured out for us. Let's pray. Father, we come to your table eager to receive from you. And we boldly ask that you would give us everything we need for this day as we partake in this meal. Amen. As we take the bread, I remind you, Christ's body was broken for you. Receive from him. And now we take the cup. And again, hear these words. Christ's blood was poured out for you. Receive from him. Amen. I hope you'll be joining uh, with us in the coming weeks as we continue this series looking at the parables of Jesus. And as a reminder, if you are new with us, we have a newcomer's lunch on Sunday, May 15th, following the 11 a.m. service. We would love to have you join us. It's free. Just come and you can meet uh, many of our staff and leaders and we can have some food together. But as we go, hear these words of benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>